All right, we are back, and I think I must uh, now take up what I deferred from the first segment, that discussion, um, as a prelude to our upcoming talk with Lee McIntyre about on disinformation, which he subheadlined how to fight for truth and protect democracy. Well, we have a little bit of a disturbing news item that accompanies it, which I think I will quote from. There's an article by Tyler Durden about how U.S. intelligence has been manipulating Wikipedia for over a decade, according to Wikipedia's co-founder. Surprise, surprise, surprise. You couldn't resist, could you? I could not help myself. I see. To quote from the piece, the co-founder of Wikipedia has revealed a bombshell concerning long-running suspicions of U.S. intelligence interference and manipulation on the world's most well-known collaborative online encyclopedia. Wikipedia's co-creator, Larry Sanger, spoke to journalist Glenn Greenwald on his podcast and outlined the known, quote, information warfare, unquote, efforts of U.S. intelligence. Some observers have long watched and carefully documented U.S. government involvement in major social media platforms, as well as Wikipedia, and have commented, the CIA is running Wikipedia? Wow, what a shocker, and don't you dare. Sanger apparently told Greenwald, quote, we do have evidence that as early as 2008, that CIA and FBI computers were used to edit Wikipedia before posing, do you think they stopped doing it back then? Sanger then explained that the intelligence agencies pay off the most influential people to push their agendas, which they're already mostly in line with. Or they just develop their own talent within the community. They learn the Wikipedia game and then push what they want to say with their own people. Here's a quote that really shocked me. Sanger said, A great part of intelligence and information warfare is conducted online, specifically on websites like Wikipedia. For that reason, Sanger called it, quote, the most biased encyclopedia, unquote, in history. And, and by the way, this cuts various ways, uh, Joe Biden, the President of the United States, is dragging his feet over the release of the records related to the JFK assassination, which were supposed to have been released in 2017 in full, barring some very compelling reason why they shouldn't be. Trump kicked the can down the road twice, then Biden came forth and said, well, you know, that's, that's what you're going to get, is what I'm going to give you, or what the CIA is going to give you. We hope to bring Jefferson Morley back on this program to discuss this issue, along with attorney Bill Simpich, who is suing the Biden administration to obey the law and release the records. That's why I alluded to earlier about the fact that, you know, we're stuck with Joe Biden. I guess we are. And, 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 and believe you me, if the choice comes down to Biden-Trump 2, I will do everything in my power to make sure that Trump is not redefeated. Oh, I know, that's, that's one turn too many. I'm just thinking back of 2004 when uh, there was a very amusing poster for John Kerry that said, Redefeat Bush, which seemed to me was pretty funny right up to the moment when Bush stole the election again. And by the way, if you, if you think that Bush really won the 2004 election, we would just refer you back to our archives at radioparallax.com for one of our many discussions on that on that subject, including uh, that with Bob Fetrakis, uh, Ohio Democratic Party political analyst. 
And the statistician whose name escapes me at the moment that we spoke to explained that the odds that the 2004 election happened by chance were, well, 980,000 to one. To which we would add, well, it wasn't impossible, it just was somewhat unlikely. Anyway, what about Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer? There's an article in the New Yorker about uh, Governor Whitmer in the, in the July 24th issue under the title, The New Blue Wall. I certainly don't know enough about Governor Whitmer, uh, except the fact that, you know, a bunch of MAGA hat-wearing nuts wanted to kidnap her. But if we are somewhat unhappy with Joe Biden, and a lot of people, I think, have cause to be, we need to look at some viable alternatives. And no, we don't mean RFK Jr., who recently said that as president, he would sign a law that would ban abortions after 15 weeks or maybe 21 weeks. He he wasn't sure. Then he immediately tried to walk back what he said. Although I know he allegedly is a lawyer, I'm not sure that he ever read Roe v. Wade, because back in 1973, it did grant the state an interest in an infant once it was viable as as a human being, which is what RFK Jr. was advocating. But if you do the math on this, and apparently Junior has not, this is not something we would that enters the equation at 15 weeks or even 21 weeks. We've been speaking with uh, the folks over at whowhatwhy.com about uh, the antics of Bobby Junior, and we've been told that next time they put out a piece uh, on him to, to alert the public what sort of things he's saying, uh, they'll they'll talk with us about it. Looking forward to that. Let's go back and talk a bit more about disinformation. When there was a ramp up to the war in Iraq back in 2003, the news media was flooded with so-called experts explaining why this might happen or that might happen. We had a very interesting talk with uh, political commentator Michael Parenti back about then. I think it was 2003. And again, we'd recommend you check that out on our website at radioparallax.com. Parenti was explaining how the media will act, uh, you know, to lubricate the gears for what uh, the military-industrial complex is about to do. To paraphrase Perini, he talked about how they'd explain how, no, if we do this kind of uh, airplane that goes in or this sort of bomb, we'll, ha- we'll have to use that. It's, they're very effective and they're very accurate and blah, 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 blah. To which Perini added, you know, by the time they get done, you think, yeah, well, war, war couldn't, might not be too bad. And yes, folks, we realize this is pretty universal, but uh, I'm looking at a piece I had from the Sacramento Bee, dated December 14th, 2005, which I think I'll reuse right now. The headline was Pentagon to Feed Pro-U.S. Stories to Foreign Media. The first two paragraphs are as follows. A $300 million Pentagon psychological warfare operation includes plans for placing pro-American messages in foreign media outlets without disclosing the U.S. government as the source, a military official in charge of the program says. Run by psychological warfare experts at the U.S. Special Operations Command, the worldwide media campaign is being designed to counter terrorist ideology and sway foreign audiences to support American policies. That's their spin on it. Reading on, the military wants to fight the information war against Al-Qaeda through newspapers, websites, radio, television, and novelty items such as t-shirts and bumper stickers. Anyway, we could do a whole show on that pretty easily, and maybe maybe when we speak with Lee McIntyre, we, we will. I don't know. But everybody does it. The Russians certainly do it. In fact, turns out, the Russian government is determined that Sweden not be allowed to join NATO. 
I think the fact that Sweden has wanted to join NATO is testimony to the fact that they are genuinely concerned about uh, Putin's Russia. Sweden has had, its, had a long history of being neutral. It was neutral during World War II. But apparently in the last couple of years, they've decided neutrality when Russia is not very far away is maybe not such a good idea. Anyway, writing in the New York Times, Stephen Lee Myers notes that facing a tsunami of disinformation about the treatment of Muslims that has in recent months fueled protests from Stockholm to Baghdad, Sweden decided it needed to fight back. It turned to the Psychological Defense Agency as part of the Ministry of Defense that its government created last year. The agency has become the first line of defense for a country facing a sustained information attack from abroad. It's also worth noting that Turkey, an Islamic country, has stood in the way of Sweden entering NATO because they didn't like the fact that the Swedes took uh, some positions that the president of Turkey uh, did not like, I think uh, mostly involving uh, Armenians and the Armenian genocide, which Turkey denies ever happened, etc. So if you're going to create propaganda against the Swedes, you might as well make it anti-Muslim. Notes the article... Sweden has faced intensive disinformation campaigns beginning in late 2021 with posts on Twitter, YouTube, and other social media platforms, which are really great places to pass along disinformation, folks, which expressed anger over the plight of an Iraqi immigrant in Sweden whose children were removed from his custody by the country's Child Protective Services. Those accusations metastasized into false accusations that Sweden was kidnapping Muslim children and forcing them to eat pork or other, otherwise violate Islamic traditions, which spread online in Arabic-speaking countries, including Egypt, Morocco, Lebanon, and, of course, Turkey. In case you're keeping score, the immigrant in question was not, in fact, a Muslim, but a Mandian Sabian, an adherent of an ancient monotheistic faith in southern Iraq that reveres John the Baptist, among other prophets. I know that Lee McIntyre has uh, spent a lot of energy looking at the fact that uh, a lot of what we're seeing currently in way of disinformation has its origins in Putin's Russia, to which I would tack on. Uh, it's not exactly new, this matter of disinformation coming out of Russia. There's a, there's a book out currently titled The Red Hotel, The Untold Story of Stalin's Disinformation War, which was reviewed in The Economist a couple of weeks back. The Economist notes that when Germany attacked the Soviet Union in 1941, Winston Churchill persuaded Joseph Stalin to let a posse of British and American journalists come to reside in Moscow to tell the Western world about the communist bravery in fending off the Nazis. More than a dozen scribes found themselves corralled within the Metropole Hotel, a huge Art Nouveau edifice just off Red Square in Moscow, which already housed a motley group of Stalinist spies and prostitutes. By the way, the hotel remains open today, but with a different clientele, at least they say. I remember seeing the Metropole in my visit to Moscow some years back, and um, if I ever return, I, th I think I'm going to try and stay there. The piece notes that the Western journalists cooped up in the hotel, mostly male, all tightly muzzled by censors and prevented from, prevented from traveling freely, soon found themselves in hock two, and occasionally in bed with a bevy of women who doubled as translators and fixers. This book, The Red Hotel, is a compelling and often horrifying tale of the moral degradation and occasional heroism superbly told by a seasoned reporter, Alan Phillips, who knew Moscow firsthand in the last years of communism. 
The Economist notes that even before Churchill's wartime press deal with Stalin, a reporter previously based in Russia for the New York Times, I hope that's not Walter Durante, had written a bitter, unpublished cable to his editors, lamenting that correspondence in Moscow had been reduced to the role of writers for TASS, which was a Soviet news agency. Every correspondent still there knows that his work is entirely valueless. Indeed, the correspondent in the hotel, which they called the Gilded Cage, issued not a peep in their dispatches about the twin horrors of Stalin's benighted country, pervasive poverty and terror imposed by the NKVD, a forerunner of the KGB. They note the most shameful nadir of Western coverage was the carefully orchestrated group visit in 1944 to the grisly site of the Soviet massacre of Polish officers and gendarmes at Katyn Forest, which the press corps dutifully attributed to the Germans. However, the 22,000 Polish dead are reckoned to have actually been murdered there and at other sites by the NKVD, the Russians, not the Germans. Anyway, we talked about this before when it came to uh, Walter Durante winning a Pulitzer Prize for his, his coverage in the early 30s of the Soviet Union that failed to um, notice the fact that there was a massive famine going on in Ukraine. We have some folks out there that may be willing to come on this program and talk about that incident and it's a worthy topic. I think we should do it. I'm not sure when. Hopefully soon. We also mentioned the fact that we might want to bring on Yale's Timothy Snyder, author of On Tyranny, 20 Lessons from the 20th Century. We did, uh, on this program, air an extensive clip of his talking about uh, what happened in Ukraine. Another worthy guest that I hope, I hope we get to. Speaking of bad Russian behavior, and I, I guess we are, the Week magazine has a piece that refers to the Sowalki Gap, a term I'd never heard of until this issue came before me. The Sowalki Gap represents the border area between Poland and Lithuania. Why is that important? Well, it turns out that there's a piece of Russia on the Baltic Sea. It was the city of Konigsberg for many years in the Prussian Empire, in the wake of the two world wars, it became Russian territory, and it was renamed Kaliningrad. It still is Russian territory, though it's detached from the rest of Russia. Now, Russia still has excellent uh, relations with Belarus, which might be considered Russia light. But alas, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, which used to be in the, in the first three cases part of the Soviet Union, or in the case of Poland, part of the Warsaw Pact, are now NATO members which means that that piece of Russia is surrounded by NATO. Now, back in the 1990s, when the Baltic republics were admitted to NATO, defense analysts warned that Russia could cut them off from the rest of the alliance by seizing the Sowalki Gap. And that warning is now looking prescient because troops are being massed uh, near the border, and it's been said that uh, they could take that area back in a matter of hours, and no doubt they could militarily. Now, whether that's going to happen or not is something I can't sort out among the disinformation, but, uh, you know, like we need more worries in the world. Or for that matter, worries right here at home. We got, we got plenty of those, plenty of domestic worries to talk about. For example, the U.S. Supreme Court. You may have noticed that the Supreme Court voted 5-4 to four last week to revive the Biden administration's regulation of ghost guns, which are kits you can buy online and then assemble into untraceable firearms. Evidently, Chief Justice John Roberts and fellow conservative Amy Coney Barrett joined the justices' three liberals to leave the rules against such kits uh, in place. 
issued last year, the regulations require manufacturers and sellers of gun kits and components to put serial numbers on their products and to run background checks on buyers. But wouldn't you know it, a U.S. district judge down in Texas had blocked the regulations last month, ruling that, quote, a weapons parts kit is not a firearm, unquote. In the government's emergency appeal, which got to the Supreme Court, Solicitor General Elizabeth Prologar said there's been an explosion of crimes involving ghost guns. Authorities recovered more than 19,000 firearms without serial numbers in 2021. 2017, there was just 1,600 taken in. And how about this as an aside? A wave of gun violence against doctors, nurses, and security staff in U.S. hospitals has put healthcare workers at greater risk of injury than workers in any other profession, including law enforcement, so they say. The frequency of shootings has become such a concern that hospitals have armed security officers with batons, stun guns, and handguns, and some states created their own police forces. And here's another item from the not exactly a surprise category. And no, no, don't go there. Law enforcement officials in Texas City say a law allowing adults to carry handguns without a license has led to more spontaneous shootings during arguments over driving, parking spots, loud music, and love triangles. Harris County Sheriff Ed Gonzalez said, It seems like there's been a tipping point where just everybody's armed. As of January of next year, half the nation's states will allow, quote, permitless carry, unquote. And speaking of the Supreme Court, our favorite nincompoop justice, Clarence Thomas, is apparently in further hot water. The New York Times reported last week that uh, Thomas apparently bought his beloved luxury RV with the help of a healthcare executive. Thomas paid $267,000 for his 40-foot Prevost Lemirage XL Marathon in 1999. The vehicle has become central to Thomas's self-description as a man of humble tastes who rather vacation in the heartland of America than in Europe. He's told friends that he scrimped and saved to buy the RV. But the New York Times noted the purchase was in fact underwritten by Anthony Welters, who made his fortune with a Medicaid services business. Thomas did not declare Welters' assistance. Welters told the Times, I loaned a friend money, but declined to specify whether the loan was repaid or forgiven and whether any interest was charged along the way. And we'd like to refer you to the August 4th edition of The Week magazine, which does excellent briefings on numerous topics. In this case, the topic was the Supreme Court's architect. I think this is worth a few minutes of our time. The article is about Leonard Leo. Starts with the question, who is Leonard Leo? The answer is he's the right-wing power broker who more than any other single person paved the way for recent major Supreme Court decisions overturning abortion rights environmental protections, and affirmative action. Over a period of three decades, the senior Federalist Society executive played a pivotal role in building the court's current six-justice conservative supermajority. He marshaled allies to spend $15 million on PR, supporting the confirmation of both John Roberts and Sam Alito. In 2016, presidential candidate Donald Trump vowed to consider only Federalist Society members for court appointments. And, oddly, a man of his word in this case anyway, turns out Trump's appointees, Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett, all appeared on short lists of candidates handed to Trump by Leonard Leo. 
Described as a consummate networker, Leo introduced longtime friend Clarence Thomas to right-wing billionaire Harlan Crow and arranged for Sam Alito to join another conservative billionaire, Paul Singer, on Singer's private jet for a 2008 luxury fishing trip to Alaska. A master fundraiser of dark money, Leo has several political organizations in his orbit that have spent more than, ready for this, $504 million on political and judicial causes since 2015. And, as noted on Radio Parallax and elsewhere, a $1.6 billion gift to a group run by Leo from 91-year-old electronics magnate Barry Sade in 2020 will enable Leo to expand his influence even further. At a 2018 Federalist Society event, Clarence Thomas described Leo as the number three most powerful person in the world. To the question, what motivates Leo? The answer comes back, he has strong religious and political beliefs shaped by his arch-conservative Catholicism. Leo, now 57, attends Mass daily and belongs to the Knights of Malta, an international Catholic organization founded in the 11th century whose 13,000 select members take secret vows. You know, I have to just pause right there to say, you know, people that downgrade, you know, conspiracy theories as all lunacy, well, no. There are entities out there like the Knights of Malta trying to influence uh, public affairs and sometimes succeeding. Notes the week, adamantly opposed to same-sex marriage, LGBTQ rights, abortion, and contraception, Leo claims America has grown more hateful and intolerant of Catholicism, and that his foes are, quote, not just uninformed or unchurched, but often, quote, deeply wounded people whom the devil can easily take advantage of. That's right, folks. Leonard Leo sees his enemy as the devil. Leo has responded to critics who accuse him of seeking a theocracy by insisting he simply wants to, quote, defend the Constitution as it's written, unquote. In answer to the question, how has he pursued his mission? The answer is most overtly through the Federalist Society, for which he is now co-chairman of the board. It was founded in 1982 by conservative law students, and on Leo's watch it has become, as Mitch McConnell put it, a farm team of potential judges. With some 70,000 members and $20 million in yearly revenue, the tax-exempt organization carefully selects ambitious young law students with conservative views, steeps them in, quote, originalist and textualist judicial philosophy, and shepherds them from law school to the bench. All of the Supreme Court nominees Leo supported were approved by the Federalist Society, and so were the 200-plus federal judges he guided to confirmation under Trump. Okay, hit the alarms. It's noted that historically the Federalist Society has been funded by corporations and private donors, but it also receives millions each year from Leo's other organizations, which include 150 other groups that are financially interconnected, such as for-profit firms and some non-profits, Because the Supreme Court's 2010 Citizens United decision exempts social welfare organizations from disclosing their donors, these groups often attract big checks from wealthy activists, also known as dark money. One of them, the Judicial Crisis Network, spent $17 million on campaigns to block President Obama's nomination of Merrick Garland to succeed the late Justice Antonin Scalia and then to push through Gorsuch's confirmation. 
By the way, these organizations appear to have ballooned Leo's personal wealth. In March, Politico revealed that Leo went from living in a suburban Washington, D.C. home with a 30-year mortgage to buying two mansions on a main resort island worth $5 million, buying four new cars, and hiring a personal wine buyer. To the final question of what's Leo doing now, the answer was he's plowing into the culture wars with Sade's bequest nearly quadrupling his available funds. And in an additional uh, sidebar box to the piece on Leo, it's noted that no justice has remained closer to him than Clarence Thomas. Two years after graduating from Cornell Law School, Leo gathered evidence supporting Thomas when Anita Hill's accusations of sexual harassment threatened to derail his confirmation back in 1991. Clarence Thomas is the godfather of one of Leo's children. The justice and his wife, Ginny, have stayed at Leo's vacation home. Ginny, a political activist, well, to say the least, has called Leo a hero and has benefited from his largesse. Back in 2012, Leo directed then-pollster, pollster Kellyanne Conway, to build the Judicial Education Project, a nonprofit he advised, for tens of thousands of dollars to pay Ginny Thomas. After the organization filed a brief in a landmark case overturning part of the Voting Rights Act, he asked Conway to, quote, give another $25,000 to the wife of Clarence Thomas, who had voted with the majority of the Supreme Court. Leo wrote, no mention of Ginny, of course. And finally, there was a ruling in June of the Supreme Court where it rewrote uh, a Clean Water Act. Kind of ironic given that conservatives claim that activist judges on the court have uh, taken the law into their own hands, but... Uh, writing in Slate, Mark Joseph Stern said, it's the conservative justices who are engaging in abuse of power. This court apparently believes it has a sacred duty to rewrite any law it doesn't like. The text and clear intent of the Clearwater Act did not meet the approval of Justice Sam Alito and his brethren, so they simply substituted their own language and policy preferences. By the way, the EPA uh, had the authority to block development and discharge of pollution into marshes and bogs that empty into rivers, lakes, and oceans. The Clean Water Act had authorized the agency to regulate navigable waters, which Congress expressly defined to include wetlands adjacent to larger bodies of water. But the Supreme Court conservatives threw out 50 years of precedent, ruling that a wetland can only be protected if it has a continuous surface connection to large bodies of water. In doing so, even Brett Kavanaugh tartly reminded his colleagues of their supposed commitment to textualism. Anyway, noted Slate, the court just removed about half of the country's wetlands from protection, giving landowners maximum latitude to fill in, build on, or otherwise obliterate some of the most valuable ecosystems on Earth. Ouch! All right, yours truly is determined to travel down to the southern San Joaquin Valley to check out Tulare Lake, which at the moment... Rivals Lake Tahoe in size. And yes, Mr. Malone, I mean by that service area, not volume. Anyway, I'm, tried to, I'm quite tickled by the article that appeared in SF Gate about two men who paddled their kayak from Tulare Lake to San Francisco Bay the last time it filled up, which was back in 1983. I'm astonished by the math in this in that the men paddled 400 miles, it is said, in 11 days. And if you've ever paddled a kayak, you would know that paddling 40 miles in a day, let alone doing it 11 days in a row, is a lot. Anyway, the story is back in 1983. Two guys, Bill Cooper and John Sweetster, put in in Bakersfield and found connecting waterways all the way to the bay. And 
And by the bay, I mean the Richmond Marina, which I think they figured was close enough to San Francisco. Sadly, the word is that some structures they built since 1983, uh, flood control uh, structures, uh, will prevent any aspiring kayakers from repeating this performance currently, which is a darn shame. What amazes me is that uh, Bill Cooper apparently spent exactly one afternoon in the seat of a kayak before he made this attempt. He told the Fresno Bee in June 8th of 1983, I was ready to collapse, adding it was hotter than hell and we had to sleep in the swamp. Now the highlight of their voyage was Tulare Lake. When they reached it back in 1983, they said it was like a small ocean. There were white caps, adding, and now the lake's back again. And you know, mark my words, dear listener, I... I intend to go down there and see if I can't put a kayak on that body of water and paddle around, although I don't expect to go all the way to the Richmond Marina. That about does it for today's program, which was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. We will see you next week. (laughs) 